when it comes to your finances, you think you've done it all. You've saved, you've researched, and you've invested all that you can. Now it's time to take those investments to the next level by using the brand behind every great investor, Yahoo Finance. As America's number one finance destination, Yahoo Finance has everything you need, whether you're a seasoned trader or just dipping your toes into the market. Join the millions of investors who trust Yahoo Finance to guide them on their financial journey. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit yahoofinance.com, the number one financial destination, yahoofinance.com. Welcome to FT Politics, a weekly podcast on what's happening in Westminster from the Financial Times. I'm Sebastian Payne. We're into the summer political recess, and so we're trying something a little different. Over the next couple of weeks, I'll be sitting down with some interesting political figures who I think will be shaping the political weather over the rest of the year. Some of you might be familiar with, others possibly not. Our first guest I'm pretty sure you might have heard of. Liz Truss is the Conservative MP for South West Norfolk and Chief Secretary to the Treasury. She entered Parliament in 2010 as part of David Cameron's A-list of candidates to freshen up the party state image. She first made her name as leader of the Free Enterprise Group of MPs who wants to put a rocket up the British economy with some more business-friendly policies. She rapidly took to political office, first as a junior education minister, then into the cabinet in 2014 as environment secretary, then justice secretary, and last June she moved to the treasury and has reinvigorated her reputation thanks to a number of high-profile speeches and ample use of hashtags. Liz, thank you very much for coming to the FT for a summertime Great to chat. to be here, Sebastian. Although the air conditioning's a bit cool, so it's not feeling very summery today. Like most of the cabinet, I'm sure you're very relieved that it is now the summer break. The government hasn't collapsed. Theresa May is still in Downing Street. You're still in your job, so everyone can breathe a little easier until September. What does August mean for you? Well, August is a great time to get all the work done that you haven't been able to do during the rest of the year to make preparations for the autumn. We've got the budget coming up. We've got the spending review coming up. But also I'll be taking a bit of time off just to recharge the batteries. And where's time off? Is that the constituency or abroad? Both, actually. So I'll be in Norfolk and Italy over the summer. Because the traditional idea in Westminster is that MPs just disappear off the streets around SW1 are entirely bare. But you're still a minister. You've still got a department to run. So how much time do you spend between the Treasury and your constituency over the summer? for people? Well, thanks to modern technology, you can do most of it online. So I won't be in the Treasury very much over the summer. I'll be in my constituency, spending time with my family and... Uh, Yeah, of course, doing Treasury work, but I can do it online. So let's talk a bit about your constituency. Norfolk's very much a very conservative area, apart from Clive Lewis, I think, and Norman Lamb. It's blue all around there. And what are the main kind of things you have to deal with in your constituency, apart from the day-to-day casework most MPs get? I think the biggest issue in Norfolk is the poor infrastructure. So it's the lack of serious infrastructure investment for years and years, which we're now putting right. So one of my first achievements as an MP was getting the A11 jeweled, which has made a massive difference, but it's getting the train lines upgraded. It's making sure that we've got broadband. That is a massive issue for my constituents. I don't know if you saw, there's a fascinating piece in the FT. We ran that there was a direct correlation between broadband speeds and propensity to vote for Brexit. And it was the most Brexit voting areas, the ones that had the worst broadband. So Norfolk was obviously one of those places. Well, it's certainly my constituency 
the broadband's got better, but there are still a lot of people that don't have good enough broadband. And I think in the modern world, whatever you want to do, whether it's go on Instagram, which I love doing, or do your homework if you're at school, or run a business, you need access to that infrastructure. And what more can be done about that? Because there's been a lot of focus on BT and BT Openreach, mm. the two bodies that are sort of responsible for this. And people have been very critical of Openreach for not moving fast enough with broadband. What more would you like to be done? Well, these are areas we're looking at for the future. And I know that DCMS are working on fibre rollout, how we do it, how we make sure it happens. But overall, you know, our utilities need to continue to be the best in the world. We need regulatory models that work. One of the things I've advocated is looking at countries like South Korea, who have led the world in this, who have a single utilities regulator. I think there's a lot more we can do. Well, there's been a lot of criticism of regulators across the board, be it energy, be it railway, or be it on Ofcom full broadband as well. And there is this general sense they haven't got enough teeth. They're not just doing their job properly. And if you look at water price, which the FT's and a lot of investigating in over the past couple of months and it just looks like off water just not really doing their job there do you think the regulators are all fit for purpose i think we need to look at where we've come from which is when those companies were first privatized in the 80s 30 years ago they were hugely underperforming and we need to remember what british rail was like which is the number of passengers were very low the service was appalling the water industry wasn't being invested in And that has been turned around. But I do agree with you. We need to make sure that our regulatory structures match the best in the world. And since the 1980s, we've now got things like the internet, which we didn't have then. We've got vastly new technologies. We've got new industries that have opened up. And I would like to see more cross-sector competition. So utility companies being able to compete with each other. And those are absolutely things we should look at. And we should always aim to be the best in the world and rather than following other countries leading. Well, you mentioned the But the answer isn't to go backwards, back to the 1970s and nationalise them. The answer is to look at what the best country is, you know, in terms of broadband, I think it is countries like South Korea. Well, you mentioned the best in the world there and there was a front page of the Daily Telegraph this week as recording it that said that Britain's railways are the best in the world, according to a spokesman of the Rail Delivery Group. I think a lot of your constituents and commuters might not quite agree with that. That is definitely true and people... People are very annoyed about some of the problems that have been with the services. And in the modern world, we expect services that are at the times when they say they'll be. We expect modern equipment, things like Wi-Fi. they're just not in so many cases. And that is being fixed. I know that Chris Grayling is working very hard on that, making sure that the timetable is delivered. And there were problems. I don't think anyone would deny that at all. So let's just do a quick review of the political year so far. It's been a nice, quiet six months in British (laughs) politics. Every six months, I think it can't get any crazier. And then it gets crazier. It's been a great time to be in politics from a sheer interest point of view, I can tell you. And fascinating to observe it as well. What's been the craziest moment? What was the point where you just stood back and thought, oh my word, this is just bonkers? I think, of course, the Brexit negotiations is the big thing we're doing. You know, this is a 40-year that we've been members of the European Union. We're working to leave the European Union. Of course, that dominates the political discourse. And that has created probably some of the most seismic moments of this year. There was checkers and the aftermath, of course, but 
there are all kinds of other moments. I think at the end of last year, we had Theresa May getting on the plane at three in the morning. I think that was a important moment as well. How do you think Chequers landed? Because I think in terms of Brexit, that was probably the most decisive moment, not least because two cabinet ministers decided they couldn't stomach it and walked out of the government, Boris Johnson and David Davis. But it was the first time the UK really put forward what I would describe as a coherent economic strategy that was negotiable. We'll find out in the autumn how much the EU is going to do to that. But why did it take so long to get to that point? You know, it's two years since we voted to leave the EU and arguably what was presented in Chequers should have been presented before we triggered Article 50. This stuff isn't easy, Sebastian, and I disagree with those people who say we should have waited to trigger Article 50. As far as the British public are concerned, they voted to leave the EU. They wanted to see action taken. We needed to get on with the negotiations in order to do that. By the constitution, we needed to trigger Article 50. It was the right thing to do. And of course, these things are difficult. The situation in Parliament is not easy, as we saw by the votes a few weeks ago. But I think what Chequers shows is that there is a solution that is negotiable and does command parliamentary support. I think it was significant... But nevertheless, parliamentary support. And that is what we're talking about. You know, we are in a position where the Conservative Party doesn't have a majority. We do rely on the support of other parties. But nevertheless, those votes were won. And overall, Parliament wants to see Brexit happen and they want to see it happen properly. So I take your point about it being very complex. It's 40 years of trading, economic and legal relationships with the continent. It's easy to sit there in the Financial Times and say, you know, this is all simple, but it isn't. I've you know, never the, said it was simple. The daily simple. work of government, everyone thinks it's glamorous, but there's a lot of grind to it. And that is what is involved in such a complex negotiation. We had the election last year, which reduced the Conservatives' majority to next to nothing. And the arithmetic for getting a Brexit deal was clear. So again, why did it take a year from the election to say, OK, this is where MPs are, to now to say, well, actually, here's a deal that we can possibly get through Parliament? Well, if you remember, we only got onto the stage where we were talking about trade and our future relationship. Post-December. Post-December. So that was important work that was undergone, getting through the first stage, talking about the financial settlement making sure that we had the implementation period in place. So that was an important stepping stone to getting to talking about the ultimate trading relationship and how that was going to work. And it's involved work with the European Union, discussions that have taken place in Parliament. None of those things are simple or easy. And But I think what's important is we have consistently made progress. The talks have moved to a new stage. We're now in a position where you yourself admitted we've got a negotiable proposition on the table. We do. So let's just talk about Liz Truss for a moment. How did you end up in politics and what did you do before you entered Parliament? So I've always been interested in politics. From Uh, your teenage years? Well, even before that. Well, I say interested. I was kind of dragged along by my parents who were... To CND marches. CND marches and things like that in the 1980s. And It was a fascinating time in politics. I was interested in what was going on. There was the Cold War with the Soviet Union. And I did get involved in politics as a teenager. With the SDP, I believe? No, it was actually the Liberal Democrats. So there you go. I'm not quite that old. (laughs) It was the the Liberal Democrats at the time. And I'm essentially somebody who wants to control my own life. I believe strongly in personal freedom. I believe that people who are 
capable adults should be able to determine their own future. I don't believe in the government telling them what to do. I thought the Liberal Democrats was the way of expressing that. I then found out as I grew up, as I met Conservatives, that actually that instinct in favour of freedom, self-determination, personal responsibility is strongest in the Conservative Party. And there's quite a lot about the Liberal Democrats that is quite nanny state, what was which the, I got frustrated by. What was the point, can you remember, when you flipped over from the yellow bird to the blue rosette? Well, it was at university. It was probably because I met Tories who were nice people and I thought I could... You met young Tories at <laughs> exactly, university that persuaded you. I met some you. Tories. But also, the Europe debate was going on at the time and the Liberals... This time of Maastricht. Well, yeah, they were keen to join the Euro, which I thought was a bad idea. So that was one thing. And the other thing I remember is a big debate about putting a penny on income tax for education. And I thought that was the wrong policy, that actually we shouldn't be raising taxes. We should be spending government money better. So uh, and the combination of those things, I thought, actually, the Liberal Democrats say they're a liberal freedom-loving party, but they're not really. So then after that, you were also director of the Reform Think Tank, which focuses on reforming public services. When did you make the decision? But before to- that, I worked for Shell and Cable and Wireless. So I did work in the telecoms industry, which is one of the reasons I'm so interested in it. And also I worked in the oil industry as well. And what was the moment you decided you were going to run as an MP? Well, I actually ran in 2001. So I was... In which seat? In Hemsworth, in Yorkshire. Against John Trickett? Yes, who is from Leeds as well. So you ran in 2001. Did you run again in 2005? I did. Um, I'm a trier. (laughs) We can say that. And eventually you're part of that A-list. And it's remarkable when you look back at that A-list that you're one of the few examples of someone who's actually still there, still at the top of cabinet. A lot of those people sort of didn't quite make it. Well, I'm one of the people who was on the A-list, but I was already interested in politics before that. And I'd already stood twice before, so... Were you on the Tatler Tory list, that infamous no, photo I wasn't. shot? No, I've never been in Tatler. Is that still a career aspiration? Definitely. <laughs> if Tatler's listening, please get on to me. But there's something to look forward to over the summer. So when you went into Parliament, how did you find that experience for the first time? When you went into the House of Commons, you said you'd followed and observed politics for many years, but then you were actually inside the chamber and you had to try and make your name. How was those initial couple of years? It was a brilliant time. And I think being in coalition with Liberal Democrats gave Tory backbenchers a lot of freedom because any policies we didn't like, we could just say it was a Liberal Democrats idea. So it was kind of licensed to go out and say, well, here's what a real Tory government would do if we had total control and if Nick Clegg wasn't cocking things up. That's why we were able to do things like the Free Enterprise Group. We were able to write books like Britannia Unchained because there was a freedom that probably we wouldn't have had under a Tory majority government where we'd have had to admit it was David Cameron's idea. So tell me about the Free Enterprise Group and how that came together. This was obviously like-minded MPs like yourself who loved liberty and wanted to try and keep taxes as low as possible and focus on business-friendly policies. And it was one of many groups I remember that emerged at that time when the Conservatives were back in power again. What was the aim of it? Well, after the financial crash, there was a lot of people saying that capitalism is over, that we don't believe in free enterprise anymore, and that what we need is more government intervention. And we thought that was completely wrong. In fact, a lot of the problems in the financial crisis have been caused by poor regulation. So, for example, the tripartite regulatory structure, or by too much government spending, which is what Labour had done. They'd increased the size of the state to 45% of GDP. So, We were there to put the case for pro-competition policies and not just pro-business, 
pro new entrants, pro having a free market where anybody could be able to set up a business could be successful. This isn't about defending the big corporates and specific regulatory benefits they might have. It was all about making the case for enterprise. But that obviously had a controversial side. I remember when Britannia Unchained came out, which was the book of 13 free enterprise group MPs, and essentially said Britons are very lazy people. That was what you put us, and that was the headline. And it didn't go down probably quite as well as you wanted it to. I don't know who wrote that exactly. It certainly wasn't me. But the issue that we were talking about was Britain's productivity problem. The fact is that it's still the case that though people in Britain work very hard, we're producing less per hour than other countries. And that means we're all working incredibly long hours and not necessarily getting the results. So Britannia Unchained was all about how do we open up more opportunities? And we talked about things like education, becoming more of a risk-taking country. I think we're overly cautious. I think people could say we've certainly become a risk-taking country in the past two years. But I think that is part of the motivation behind Brexit for a lot of people who voted for it. It was saying, actually, we can go it alone. We can be successful. Let's have a go at this. So after the Free Enterprise Group, you first went to government as a junior education minister, where I believe you were called Miss Dynamite by civil <laughs> by, servants. I think actually by Fraser Nelson. It was anyway. Fraser Nelson, <laughs> the spectator, but it, I think he'd heard it from civil servants. You essentially went in a childcare minister, if I'm right. And that was when you were working under Michael Gove. And at that point, education was a truly reformist department. There's a lot of new policies coming in. The flip side of that as well, that some said that it was a quite aggressive environment to work in and there was all sorts of stuff about press briefings and what have you. How do you remember that experience? It was great. It was a bit like being on a pirate ship. So it was a different style. Does that make Michael Gove Captain Hook then? (laughs) Kind of, but in a good way. (laughs) He was a great reforming minister at that department and it needed it because the education establishment in Britain had resisted a lot of changes in policy. The so-called blob. Yeah, the so-called blob. And what this was about was putting fresh impetus, disruptors essentially in the education system in the shape of free schools and academies, and also raising our standards to be the best in the world. You know, why is it that kids in Japan or China were performing better in subjects like maths and science than Britain? There's no reason for that. Our children aren't any less able And it was challenging the sort of excuses culture that we'd seen for generations in education. And I went to school in Leeds in the 1990s and 80s. And I remember that attitude, which is that some kids just aren't that good and we don't really need to push them that hard. And that is what Michael challenged. And you can now see the effects, which is that we're performing amongst the best in Europe in terms of reading. For nine-year-olds, we were some of the worst 10, 20 years ago. And I think it does take a strong minister to achieve that kind of change. It was but a great fun time to be in the department. I think a lot of Conservatives sort of look back on that period, maybe with rose-tinted glasses, but they certainly <laughs> see that was a period where stuff was happening. But when Mr Gove was moved on from education because he was seen as a bit electorally toxic towards the Conservatives, the impetus for reform was really lost. And I don't think it's been regained, certainly in education since then. I don't think that's fair. I think a lot of change took place, which is now being embedded You need to have a revolution, but you also need to have continuous improvement as well. So we shook up the system and it's now the case that those reforms are being built on. And if you walk in a school now, 
I think in my constituency, we have seen big improvements. And of course, there are always issues and things need to be worked out. But there was a school in my constituency where less than 20% of students were getting 5A to C's at GCSE. It's now up around the 50% mark. These are real improvements to real children's lives, which means they're going to get better jobs. They're going to have much better opportunities. So yes, you need that sort of counterculture revolution. And you also need to keep working at it as well. I think that's how you are a successful reformer. Your previous two cabinet jobs were in environment and were in justice. I think probably when you were environment secretary, you became very infamous for a viral (laughs) social media clip. Do you think you'll ever forget that from Tory conference? No, I don't think so. (laughs) You know, it was about importing and exporting pig semen, if I believe. That is factually incorrect, Sebastian. There was a bit on cheese and how we obviously need to export more of our excellent products. And there was a bit on pork as well. It was the pork uh, and cheese. The, the, <laughs> the, there was the theme people remember. And then, of course, you went to justice. But I like to think I was one of the first political memes. That's my claim to fame. <laughs> if that's what you go down the history books for, there's probably worse things. Exactly. Um, and then you had a brief spell of uh, justice, which I think was particularly striking because it was during a time when Mrs May became Prime Minister. We had the EU referendum and there were some very notable attacks on the judiciary at this mm. point. And of course, the most infamous one of this was the Daily Mail's front page, Enemies of the People. With hindsight, do you wish you'd spoken out against that sooner? I think it is completely wrong for ministers to dictate to newspapers what they put on their front pages. But it's values and conservatives like yourself should respect British institutions and those institutions But I don't believe, attack. I think institutions are stronger when they are properly scrutinised and when they're subject to criticism. I think a lot of the problems Was that we fair have, criticism, the enemies of the people then? It's not words I would use, but I think to try and say to the press... I condemn you for writing this, is completely wrong. I think one of the most important institutions in Britain is the free press. And I've been slagged off plenty of times in the press and you learn to live with it. But I think that is better where public figures are under scrutiny than a system like Russia where journalists get arrested. I think, But there's a difference between simply saying, I disagree with this and arresting journalists. When you're a government minister, you're in a position of power. And if you say, which had been called for at the time, you shouldn't be printing this, I condemn this, which is what certain people asked me to do, I think that is an attack on the free press. And the job of Lord Chancellor is to defend the independence of the judiciary, is not to be a shop steward for the judiciary. And I think those are two very, very different things. Let's look to the future now. Do you ever feel you're the last member of the Conservative Party fighting for free market values, that you're out there talking about tax rates, talking about spending and simply saying we can't just splash the cash around, whereas everybody else in the cabinet loves to seem to splash the cash around? I think there are lots of people in the Conservative Party who believe that. And I think... In the cabinet? In the cabinet as well. I think some people in the party have lost confidence in some of those values because they wrongly believe that they're unpopular. I don't think that's true. If you look at young people in particular, young people are more likely to believe in low taxes and having more control over their own lives than older generations. And if we are to be an attractive party to the people coming through the political system, I think these are strong messages that we can put out in a positive way. So what I am happy to do is be the person out there speaking out in favour of this 
finding new ways of communicating it, gaining support for it. And I know a lot of my colleagues believe in it and want to support that too. And that's why the FREA, which has been set up by two 2017 colleagues of mine, Lee Rowley and Luke Graham, because they believe in those values as well. So I think there is a growing movement within the Conservative Party. And I believe that more broadly in the country, people do want more control over their own lives. They don't necessarily want to be paying over huge sums of money in taxation. What I would say is I think people in the country want a change in whatever they've got now because the big challenge you've got... People do want a shake-up. You're right about that. Because, you know, you've got to try and sell capitalism and free markets to under 45s, particularly my millennial generation, (laughs) who are the ones who have lost faith in this. And the reason I don't think they have lost faith in it. I think they want to see... Why are they voting for Jeremy Corbyn then? I think where Jeremy Corbyn, and my God, he's got all kinds of faults, has made a successful point is that we do need a shake-up. And I think people want to see that. So they want to see things change. But what that shouldn't be is moving back to the past. It's got to be a future country where we have more enterprise. People feel more able to set up their own businesses. They feel more able to get on the housing ladder. So it's a greater degree of control over your own life, not less. I mean, John McDonnell is talking about spending £500 billion of government money on centralised planning run by the government. I mean, can you imagine what that would be like? You accuse Labour saying that they're looking backwards to the past, but essentially the sort of stuff you're talking about is going back to core Thatcherite arguments. No, it's not. I mean, Mrs Thatcher did a great job at the time. She released so Promoting much... Promoting liberty, low she taxation. Ma- but the areas we need to look at now, areas like housing and planning, were not areas that Mrs Thatcher dealt with. She dealt with the challenges at the time, unions privatising nationalised industries. Our big challenges are areas like housing, opening up the economy, utilities and what does the future look like in a fully digital broadband world for regulation... Those are the areas we're focusing on. So you mentioned housing there, which is obviously a key tenant of why the result was as it was in the 2017 general election. Would you be happy to start paving over our green and pleasant land? Well, I have said that I do think we need to open up more land for building. And I think people... How much more? A lot more. There are a lot of NIMBYs in Britain who... A lot of NIMBYs in the Conservative Party. There are, but I think it's a dwindling number. I think people recognise that the choice is building on more greenfield sites and making sure there are enough homes for the next generation or losing the election and ending up with Jeremy Corbyn, whose policy appears to be appropriating property. So I know which one I'd choose. And it's having more homes available on the open market for people, whatever generation, to afford. And also, I think we need to make it easier to build up in cities. I quite like the Japanese system, where essentially... You can build up on top of your house without having to get extra planning permission. I think we need to be more liberal about these policies. I'm sure there'll still be a lot of toys having a colony at the thought of all those things. Let's just talk about <laughs> your core job for a moment. So you're essentially the facts, the figures, the data person at the Treasury, which is super important stuff, but it's not particularly sexy to try and sell to people. How do you make what the Treasury does engaging? I can't believe you don't think it's sexy. People at the FT <laughs> do, and I'm sure listeners to FT politics do, but not everybody does. Well, one thing I think we need to do and I do do is break it down to what are we spending per household? So my job is overall being in charge of the purse strings, 
We spend £800 billion a year, which doesn't mean much to people. But that's £29,000 per household. And I think that's a number that everyone can visualise. And my job is, how do we get the best value for money for that £29,000? All of that has to be funded by the tax that your household pays. What proportion are we spending on things like housing, pensions, education? Is that the right mix? And that that's the way we can bring it to life. Do you think we're spending too much? Is the state too big in this country? I think we're spending too much in some areas. and there what, are, what sort of areas? Well, it's also the way we spend money. So I think we can become more efficient and more digital in the way we deliver things. A, a lot of interest in artificial intelligence and how we can use that better across government. We're often asking people multiple things from multiple different departments. Surely we should be able to operate in a more modern way. And I know Matt Hancock is looking at that in the health service. And there are areas where we need to think about, do we want government to do this or can this be successfully delivered in the private sector? When you hear cabinet ministers talking about the end of austerity, that must make you bristle a little bit. Well, I think it depends what you mean by austerity. For example, on public sector pay, what we've done is... just given a big cash boost to a lot of public sector workers. We have, and that's the right thing to do because we need to be able to retain high-quality people in the public sector. In many cases, it's been in exchange for reform. So, for example, for nurses, we've changed the way that performance is rated. We've got rid of automatic increments. That's going to improve productivity in the health service. It's going to help nurses on the front line deliver better at the same time as giving them a pay rise. And that's the type of approach I want to take as Chief Secretary. It's making sure that we are delivering the best possible public services but in a way that benefits staff and also benefits the public. What about the big cash boost for the NHS, which was announced to coincide with the health service's 70th anniversary? Because I think Conservatives have generally thought, look, we've got to give it this money because if we don't, the next election will be a referendum on the NHS and we will lose that. But a lot of people have been critical for this because it's not coming with a huge amount of reforms. It's not exactly clear where this money is going. It is coming with reform, if I could clarify that. But not with big structure reform to the NHS. It's mostly tinkering. The last big reform, I think, obviously was during the Lansley era, which nobody particularly wants to revisit. But essentially, it's giving a lot of money. And the key thing is, nobody seems particularly sure where the money's coming from for this. So there will be reforms, and we're working at the moment on a plan for how those productivity improvements are going to be delivered. It's already been delivered in terms of the pay deal for nurses and other NHS workers. So those reforms are taking place. I think we all acknowledge that there's been a huge increase in demand in the NHS and the money was needed. My job as Chief Secretary is to make sure every extra penny we spend on the NHS is getting better value rather than what happened under Labour, which is productivity declined. So some quick fire questions to round us off here, as close to a yes and no as you can. Will the Chequers deal hold for the rest of this year? Yes. Will the Prime Minister get a deal in October? And would you support a no-deal Brexit if it's a bad deal? So we will get a deal. I can't guarantee the month of the deal. So I'm not answering you. When would your gut be? I don't know. I'm just saying I believe there will be a deal, but I'm not sure about the precise date. And if it's a bad deal, would you accept a no-deal Brexit? We have to be prepared to do that. And that's why we're planning for a no deal. In your heart of hearts, would you like to see a really hard Brexit and turn Britain into Singapore of Europe? Brexit's a process. It's going to take time to get to where we exactly want to be. 
Where we've got to now is very good progress and I'm convinced we'll get a deal and we will continue to reform our country. Would you like to be the first female Chancellor? Well, who would say no to that? Would you like to be Prime Minister? (laughs) I'm not sure about that one. Would you support any of your other Free Enterprise Group MPs' efforts to become Prime Minister? Look, we've got a Prime Minister in place. She's doing a brilliant job. She's a very, very resilient person. And she's the person we need leading us through these Brexit negotiations. The fact is, we've got lots of fantastic colleagues. I'm delighted that Dom Raab is now Brexit Secretary. But we're not talking about the leadership here. We're talking about the future of our country. Will Theresa May be Prime Minister this time next year? Yes. And finally, if you were to cut one area of public spending, where would it be? Well, I'm not going to reveal the spending review to you now, Sebastian. Well, we can look forward to that after not getting that scoop. Thank you very much, Liz, for joining us for this special episode of FT Politics. We'll be back next week with another guest. FT Politics was presented by Sebastian Payne and produced by Anna Dedder. Until next time, thanks for listening. When it comes to your finances, you think you've done it all. You've saved, you've researched, and you've invested all that you can. Now it's time to take those investments to the next level by using the brand behind every great investor, Yahoo Finance. As America's number one finance destination, Yahoo Finance has everything you need, whether you're a seasoned trader or just dipping your toes into the market. Join the millions of investors who trust Yahoo Finance to guide them on their financial journey. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit yahoofinance.com the number one financial destination, yahoofinance.com. The secret to summer-ready skin is here. Osea's number one best-selling Andaria Algae Body Oil, clinically proven to instantly improve skin elasticity and transform dry skin to silky, soft, and unbelievably glowing. Its signature scent of freshly squeezed grapefruit, cypress, and mango mandarin transports you to sun-kissed summer days. Get healthy, glowing skin for summer with clean, vegan skincare from Osea. Get 10% off your first order site-wide with code GLOW at oseamalibu.com.